Welcome to the Pioneering Today podcast, episode number 85 with me, Melissa K. Norris. And I am really excited. Today's episode, we are talking about a very old-fashioned, old-time pioneer way of preserving your meat using the dry curing method. And I'm so excited for this episode because this is an area that I don't have a ton of experience in personally, but I've always been fascinated by. So we have done where you brine different cuts of your meats and then we have smoked them. We've done ribs and fish, but I haven't done my own pepperonis, salamis, prosciutto, pancetta, and all of those different cuts. And I haven't done where you do the dry curing, meaning with just the salt, and then you hang the cuts like they did back in the pioneer days. But I love these old time forms of preservation. One, because I think they're important skills that a lot of us don't have today. And if we don't find people that know how to do them and teach them and pass them on to other people, then these can be lost. And I also think it's important to know how to do this. One, so we can do it ourselves because, I mean, who doesn't want home-cured ham and bacon? I mean, we like to eat all this stuff, right? At least I do. So we raise our own meat, and I would like to be able to know how to preserve it myself. Plus, when we're using these old-time methods and times of preparedness, or if you need to be off-grid, you don't have power or refrigeration, some of these methods can be done without using a refrigerator because, as we know, back in the pioneer days, they didn't have refrigerators and electricity, and this is how they preserved their meat. So from a self-sufficiency and preparedness and survival standpoint, I think this is really important to know as well. So I'm really excited to dive into today's episode with you. In fact, it was so funny because I had recorded this episode And I will give a little bit of the surprise here. I've got some guests on today who are going to be teaching and walking us through this process even more. But my daughter and I just started reading the very first book in the Little House series, which is Little House in the Big Woods. And we were reading in the very first couple of chapters where Pa gets his pig and a bear and they are salt curing and wrapping it and hanging it up in the attic, which is a form of dry curing. And so it was so exciting because I had just recorded this podcast and then here we are reading it and the little house in the big woods. And it was just, I'm like, oh my goodness, this is so awesome that I'm learning how to do the things that they were doing back then. Plus it's just one of my all-time favorite series. So I can't wait to dive into this episode with you guys. We share three recipes. So this is what I'm really excited about. Karen, who is one of the guests on today, has given us three of her recipes for dry curing meat for homemade pepperoni, salami, and prosciutto. You could go and get your three free recipes to dry cure tutorials and recipes to make these for yourselves at melissaknorris.com. Click on the podcast button. This is episode number 85 to make sure that you get your recipes and the tutorials so you can do these at home. Today's episode is brought to you by my new book, The Made From Scratch Life, Simple Ways to Create a Natural Home. We'll walk you through all the ways of modern homesteading, the made from scratch life, which is your guide to modern homesteading, simplifying and using old fashioned tools and skills to create your homestead. With over $20 in free bonuses, including the Amish canning cookbook, workbooks with download sheets and guides and charts, go to madefromscratchlife.com. Okay, guys, we are diving into today's episode. 
Welcome to the Pioneering Today podcast. And on today's episode number 85, we are going to be talking about fermenting your own food at home. And I'm really excited about this because I consider myself to be a baby fermenter. I've got a little bit of experience, but I'm in no ways an expert. And so I have a special guest on the podcast today who have much more experience in fermenting than I do. So we are going to be talking to Karen and James from Swiss Hills ferments.com. So welcome guys. Thank you. We're so excited to be here. Yeah, this is awesome. Thanks for having us. Yeah. So I'm super excited. So, you know, of course, a lot of times when we think food preservation these days, you know, one of the really easiest ones to do, of course, is a freezer, but that's really dependent on power and, you know, so many things with that and you're limited to space and everything. And then of course we think of canning, but canning really, as far as the history of food preservation, canning is relatively new. You know, the mason jar was in the 1850s when it was um, first developed. Dehydrating and fermenting are probably two of the oldest forms of a um, food preservation that there is. And I'm, and I'm pretty familiar with dehydrating. But fermenting, I don't have as much experience in. So I'm super excited. So what is the the very basic of fermenting. How does it work? What is it? What are you actually doing? Well, there are a couple ways that you can preserve the meat. Um, so with fermenting, if you you if you're familiar with making a sausage, the process of fermenting a sausage or making a salami is very similar, but uh, just a couple extra steps. So um, in modern day, we add a, a culture to it, so that'll give you the beneficial bacteria to make sure that you know your food is going to ferment and and you know, get to the, the, get over the safety hurdles that you need. Um, you keep, once you make a sausage, what you do when you ferment it is you keep it warm for a little bit, which seems really strange. You know, all these food safety rules that you have to keep your food at a cold temperature, but, uh, fermenting it, you need a warm temperature to get those, um, the beneficial bacteria to start going and feeding on the sugars that are, that are in the sausage. And then that'll decrease the acidity of, or sorry, increase the acidity, decrease the pH of your salamis, make them safe to eat. Um, and from there, you can dry them a little bit to make them extra safe, you know, decrease some of that water activity that's in there. And, and yeah, I mean, your basic process is almost the same as making a sausage, but just a little bit different. Yeah. No, not much. I mean, you, you, you added before the whole freezer thing. And I think that's a big thing, especially among hunters or, or people who buy um, for more eco economical reasons, maybe a quarter of a cow or a, maybe half a cow or a slaughter a pig or something, and they throw that in the deep freeze, and six months, eight months later, they dig down over their uh, frozen pizzas and everything. They're <laughs> like, oh, I've got this 10 pounds of chuck roast in the, in the bottom of the freezer and stuff. And, and when you start throwing stuff in the freezers, the taste is going to go downhill over that period of time. Um, from freezer burn or, or it's just not going to taste as good as when you first slaughter that pig or, or cow or elk or whatever. So I think dry curing is, is really nice for hunters and for farmers or anybody who has large amounts of meat or small amounts, you know, um, because over time that, that taste and quality is actually going to improve over, over time as opposed to decrease when you put in, in, in the freezer. So okay. that's kind of nice too. Yeah, that is. It's really interesting because we raise all of our own grass-fed beef. So when I butcher, I've got, you know, between a half or a full cow 
going in the freezer. Um, Raisin butcher all our own chickens. So I have between, you know, 10 and 20 chickens when I butcher going in the freezer. So my, my freezer is really high commodity. It's pretty much only our meat. And my husband got a deer this year. So that one in the freezer. And then we raise our own pork. So again, you're like, so in the freezer, it's funny you're saying frozen pieces. I'm like, no, mine is like all meat. <laughs> pretty much. Um, but What's really interesting, so with our with our beef and is, is talking with flavor, and I think that this might have a little bit to do. I'm not I'm not sure. So we hang our beef, and we usually try to hang it as long as there's enough of fat layer on there. We age it once, so they you know we butcher it, and then the butcher we have them hang it. We actually aren't butchering our cattle on our own right now, um, mainly because we don't have cold storage for the aging process for it to hang. So we let it age. Um, for any, we prefer three weeks. Sometimes they're booked for time. And so at least 14 days, but then we age that for flavor and tenderness and all of that. And then we put it in the freezer. So, but with like the dry curing and stuff, you're saying it's actually better to do it fresh than it is in the freezer. So if you're in your freezer and you find, you know, like a, you know, a roast or something like that or some ground beef and I need to get rid of it, then is it, can you still ferment that and make it into the salami and pepperoni or is it better to just use it fresh? Oh, absolutely. So what we do is when we slaughter a pig, we'll actually, when we're pressed for time, especially when we started doing this and it took hours because <laughs> we're still learning how to do it, you know, we, we'd actually chunk it up and then throw those chunks in a bag and label it and mark it and, and weigh it and everything like that and then later defrost it. And it's always easier, you know, to grind up sausage when it's almost nearly frozen anyway, when, when it hurts your hands, um, it'll go through the grinder a lot better. So, um, throwing in the freezers, never a bad thing. I'm just saying that, you know, eight, 10 months down the road when, uh, you know, half your meat's gone for to freezer burn and you're like, gosh, dang it. Well, well no, <laughs> you lose some of that meat. And you're talking about too, about how when you hang the meat, it improves the flavor. And the same is true if you're dry curing your meats, you know, Hanging your salamis is going to improve your flavor. Um, also, if you dry cure a whole muscle, that extra time that it's hanging um, in in your chamber and it's uh, has time, it, it concentrates the flavors. You're you're losing a little bit of the water, and it just tastes better compared to um, if you're going to let your meat sit. It, it's I don't know. It tastes better when you when you let it dry cure or ferment than if you just put it in the freezer. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the fermenting process, even if you're dry curing, it's very, so I'm, I'm much more familiar with, you know, making my own yogurt and, and kefir and that kind of things. So is it the same, essentially like the same culture, you know, it's the same lactobli and everything that that's working to, to break it down and that's feeding off of it. Um, or is it, is it a different set? Like, do you, can you, per like, I have never fermented meat. Can you tell? So do you purchase those cultures or can you use cultures from other things? Like if you've got, you know, like whey or something like that, or how does, how does that process work? Like walk me through, like, I'm going to firm, I'm going to make my very first dry cured thing of meat. Like walk me through what I really do. Okay. So if you're buying, if you want a culture for your salamis, I highly recommend buying one as opposed to using yogurt or something like that. I, okay. I wouldn't be able to tell you if you get success from that or not okay. because they're slightly different cultures. Um, but if you go to, um, sausagemaker.com or, uh, what are some of the other ones? Butcher, Butcher and Packer. Yeah, Butcher and Packer is a big one. Um, you should be able to find um, some of these cultures. They're freeze-dried. You can keep them in your freezer so they last a while. And then um, you just use like a very small amount, like a quarter teaspoon or something that you that you add to your meat. Um, but even before you start making salamis, there's something that you can do to preserve your meat too. 
um, that's even easier, which is just you taking a whole muscle, um, you put salt on it and some spices, and you let that cure in the fridge for a little bit of time, uh, a few days, so that you know all the salt can get embedded and <laughs> absorbed into that into that meat. And then um, this requires no um, nitrates or uh, no starter culture if you're taking a whole muscle. And then hang that up to dry in um, a, a controlled environment that has higher humidity, about you know 70% humidity, about 60 degrees Fahrenheit, give or take, and let that dry out until it loses about 30% of its water weight. That is safe to eat raw, and you have increased your flavors exponentially. It is preserved in a traditional way without using, you know, canning jars or your freezer or something like that. And that's really the easiest way to um, to, to preserve your meat like that. Yeah. So when you say muscle. What, yeah. what cuts are you actually referring to? So when you say well, the whole I, muscle, like what? Yeah. 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 I think the, honestly the, the most popular and one that everybody kind of knows about is like your prosciutto, like the entire back leg of a pig or, okay. or hamon or, or something or deer. You can, or go, deer. You can go deer. Uh, we've seen that done. Um, or you can go for something a little bit smaller. You can go for uh, a neck muscle or you can go for the loin on the back um, as well. Um, just a whole muscle group. So when you're, okay. when you're taking that deer down or that pig down, you're just finding that muscle line and you're, you're separating that muscle from the rest of the muscle groups. Um, and then you're just hanging that up individually. So you don't need a grinder. It's nice if you don't have a grinder, right? even though what grinders are maybe a hundred, 200 bucks are really nice one that'll, they'll go through meat. Well, I don't, I don't know. know. Yeah. About there though, okay. um, it's a little bit of investment. But if you if you don't want to make that investment just yet, whole muscle is kind of the way to start, I think. Um, and the truth is that you could honestly you can take any <laughs> any piece of meat and do this if you want to. I mean, the process is the same. The taste is going to be a little bit different, of course. But you know the it's the same method for whether you t are you taking the belly or the you know the leg or whatever. So. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we're going to put some spices and salt on it and we're going to let that brine for a couple days and that the salt is going to dry dry out some of the excess moisture 30%. Okay. And then we're hanging it and you said so you said cold, so I'm thinking like refrigerator temperature and I know that there's that humidity level in there, but 60 degrees Fahrenheit cuz to me that's warm. Okay, yeah. <laughs> that's cold <laughs> the room temperature is <laughs> is ideal so it doesn't you know so it, it it dries out well but yeah if you do it if you do it in your fridge it will take a very long time okay. because it's much colder so yeah back when when people were doing more of this <laughs> naturally you know if you could find a, a cooler place like a like a basement or yeah. an attic like cellar maybe Root cellar yeah. okay yeah, exactly and, and also you want that a little bit warmer anyway because you want those bacteria, those, those microbes to bloom, the good bacteria to bloom right. very quickly and force all those bad bacteria mm -hmm. out of that muscle to keep things like what, botulism and, and all, the, all the bad. Coli all probably. The, and yeah, you want those to get destroyed pretty quickly. Okay. The good so then, so then, so it's hanging in, in this temperature. Now, 
because we have with all of our livestock like flies drive me bonkers so do you like put any kind of protective wrapping on it that would still allow it to breathe but if, if there were any like bugs you know flying around or how do you how do you do walk me through this part too <laughs> okay so i mean you I have seen people wrap their meats up in cheesecloth or something like that, mm-hmm. uh, but you are exactly right. You don't, you don't want bugs <laughs> getting into this. That would be terrible. Uh, <laughs> the, you know, the, the method that we use, because uh, we do not have a basement and we don't have a cave in the side of the hill to uh, put all of our meats in, is we, we have a curing chamber. That's actually a product that we are putting out on Kickstarter right now, which will protect you from the bugs and <laughs> will also uh, help you to get, you know, the 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 ideal temperature and the ideal from uh, humidity and the ideal airflow and all of that, just to make it easier um, to to get the best results. Do you want to explain? Yeah. So um, yeah. So you typically want to have a dedicated chamber or something along those lines, uh, unless you have a basement. You know, a basement might work too. But, uh, again, if you got bugs running around, I don't know. <laughs> um, but, yeah, w- what we're coming out with right now and what we've got on Kickstarter currently is what we call the cave. It's a control unit that you're able to put on top of a freezer or a um, refrigerator. And what it is is it has a, um, a touchscreen where you can adjust settings, your temperature setting and your humidity setting and your airflow. Um, to really precisely control the environment that you throw, you're throwing your meat, your cheese, um, starter cultures, yogurt, anything you want to ferment inside this thing. It's got a heater, it's got a fan, it's got interior lighting. So you install this on top of your freezer, and you can adjust the settings, and it'll hold those settings for you. Um, the other nice thing is it's it's got a wireless app attached to it. So let's say you're on vacation somewhere, yeah, um, and you're like, oh no. Oh no! My, I threw my beer in there, and I need to uh, throw it down a couple more degrees. I can go on to, onto my phone, and I can lower it five, ten, whatever amount that I need to adjust while you know vacation in Florida, if I theoretically, if right. I vacations. So <laughs> which I don't. But, uh, but but yeah, that's what we've got on Kickstarter right now, and it's going on for about thirty days. So we're hoping people take an interest in this. Yeah. So, so guys, um, if you go to melissaknorris.com, click on the podcast button. This is going to be episode number 85 on fermenting. And we'll have, of course, all of the show notes and in references and all of that that we're talking about. So you can get that in written form, but we'll also have links. So you can check out the Kickstarter campaign that they're doing on the cave. So really, you you have so if I if I was going to go and look at it so I just have an existing fridge or freezer and this is a, a unit that I put onto an existing fridge or freezer now does it matter what size like if it's one of the little tiny small refrigerator if it's a full size refrigerator does it operate on all sizes? Um, yeah, so it's going to operate up to about ten square feet of space. Um, well, yes, it can go on any size refrigerator, but if you want to use the heating component of it, say if you want to make yogurt or something, yeah. then we recommend using one up to 10 feet. Yeah, for that, yeah, they, the heater has the ability to heat about 10, 10 square feet of space up. So that's a good that's a good point. Yeah. Um, but we also would probably prefer that it's a single zone fridge or freezer, so it doesn't have a- Oh, the, a like the compartments and stuff unit. for your yeah. Either like a, some of those dorm room, dorm room fridges have a little freezer on top, we don't want to have to deal with that. And, and they make dorm room fridges without 
those type of freezers in there. Okay. And then you can also plug your humidifier. We have a USB port on, on the side in the interior of the, of the fridge that you can plug into. It'll also regulate humidity inside there as well. Because the last thing you want is, is for these meats or cheeses to start drying out on you and creating a really hard crust on the outside. And so once that hard crust forms, then the moisture inside gets trapped and it's not good. Okay, so that's that. That's really the big issue then with the humidity, because I've heard that a lot with the yeah. fermenting, especially the meats and stuff. Is humidity is because if the humidity level is not right, like soon it dries out. It's actually a safety issue, not necessarily yeah. just like a texture or flavor or that kind of a thing. Yeah, same with cheeses too. Cheese, your skin dries out, um, starts cracking, etc. Your mold doesn't grow properly on on the outside of your your cheese, and we've had some we've had some disasters in the few first few years too. So. Before, before the cave. Before the cave. Before what? the cave. But uh, after everything was perfect. But uh. <laughs> so then back to I know I'm going to backtrack for just a second. So when we ha- are doing the the whole muscle cut of the meat and we're dry curing it that way. So in the 60 degree thereabouts temperature range, how long are we letting that cure? It depends. If you have a very large cut of meat, it can take a long time. I mean some of those prosciuttos, the whole leg of a ham, mm-hmm. it will take like a year or something like that. But <laughs> if you have a smaller cut of meat, it's going to take much less time. You want to age it until it's lost 30% of its water weight. And at that point, your water activity is low enough that bacteria won't be able to thrive in that area and it'll be safe to eat. So then do you weigh it beforehand? And then, so you're, yeah, because that's about the only way you're going to be able to measure the 30% of the weight. Okay, yeah. so you need to scale. Yes. Okay. <laughs> well, unless you cook it, right? So um, you can make pancetta, which is very similar to bacon. But a lot of times people will want to cook that, for example. So, you know, if, if you plan on cooking it, then it's not that important that you reach that 30% weight loss. Um, it's just more of a, a flavor thing at that point if you're going to cook it. So. Okay. So after you've reached the 30% weight loss and it, it's went through, you know, the whole brining and curing process, then storage wise, and this is like, you know, really for more, you know, your preparedness and in your long-term food storage and all of that. So how do you go about storing it? And then how long is it generally good for? I guess you can store it. Um, you can continue to store it in the cave if you want to continue to age it and mm-hmm. to, you know, to keep, increasing, concentrating those flavors. After a certain point, it'll continue to dry and it'll be, um, it'll be rather hard. So, I mean, if that's something you want, you can keep doing it. Otherwise you can keep it in your refrigerator, you know, lowering the temperature is going to, um, you know, decrease the rate at which it ages and, you know, continue to preserve it. Um, you can put it in your freezer if you wanted to, um, or, but it won't keep indefinitely, yeah, you know, I mean, right. it, it is one of those things. Plus, you know, if, if you, you're dry aging pork belly or, you know, bacon and, uh, you're probably not going to keep it around forever anyway, because it's going to taste so good. You know, you're going to take down that salami and eat it. <laughs> I should say to you that these things are shelf stable once they're made. So, I mean, you can keep them out at room temperature, but I mean, there's the issue of them drying out and, you know, <laughs> so right. If you want to continue to increase their flavor at that point, or sorry, 
if you want to continue to keep them being as palatable as possible and not drying out, then I would put them in your fridge at that point, or you can keep them in your freezer if, if you want to. Right. But it, so it, it is shelf stable though. Once it's lost that certain percentage of the water, you could theoretically keep it on the, keep it on just like the kitchen counter for a couple of days or a week or like, or Absolutely. it's gone. Okay. Oh yeah. We would be very comfortable keeping it on the kitchen yeah. counter for, you know, a week or two. Take it, on, take it on a camping trip with you. You know, you've got your, your protein there. You don't have to worry about finding some meat. I don't know. Yeah. No, I love that. Cause so like when we, my husband just got his first deer and so we took it to um, a local butcher shop cause we don't have any of the sauce. I've never, you know, we've never made sausage and, and done all that, you know, don't have all the, that, um, though I'm really excited to learn how to do that at home, which is why I was super excited when you guys contacted me to come on. Cause I'm like, Oh yay, I can pick someone's brain that really knows how to do this part. Um, but we like, <laughs> So like the bacon and all of the sausage and the pepperoni, like that is like rationed out. Like it's like, this just sounds so bad where we're like, you know, it's not going to the kids' lunches. They can have some at home. We're like, okay, you get two pieces today. That's it. Well, you, you guys have your own pigs, right? Yeah. 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 And um, do you make your own bacon at home? We haven't. We've butchered them really? at home ourselves. I know, right? Like, yeah, no, we haven't yet. Uh, we've butchered them at home ourselves and done like whole pig roasts and stuff for Christmas and New Year's Eve. Um, but we haven't, I haven't done my own home cured bacon. Um, we've smoked like a lot of fish and done a lot of different, um, you know, like things like that and brining and, and smoking that. But I don't have experience with the sausage making. And I want to do that with the deer too. Like I want to make, all, you know, my own summer sausage. And then if, if we ever get a bear, like, oh my goodness. Like I want to learn how to do all that. But nobody in my family actually makes it in desert themselves. So I don't have anybody to teach me. And not that I don't mind being self-taught, but it's really nice to have someone who knows what they're doing to kind of walk you through that process, especially the first time to make sure you're doing it right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, the funny thing, well, not the funny thing, just the, the fun part is that, you know, as you progress as a hunter or, uh, you know, you're on a homestead or a farm or something like that, you want to branch out into these varying techniques. You know, you don't want to just, for deer, typically a hunter will have ground meat, you know, um, roast and steak, you know, and that's his, basically his three components. What if you uh, ground some of that up, mixed it with some of the the back fat from some of those those pigs that you've got on the farm and throw in some spices and you've got some wonderful summer sausage or smoke it even um or maybe you do the bacon which is which is isn't that bad it's um you take your your pork belly mm -hmm. and you throw it in a ziploc bag with some spices um depending on what you want to do you can probably do just a regular um maple syrup or brown sugar maple syrup bacon which is always a crowd pleaser you oh know. yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, throw that in the in a Ziploc bag in the fridge for a little while. Flip it a couple of times, once a day for about what a week, mm -hmm. um, and then from there throw it in a smoker if you've got one. We do, or yeah. in the or in the oven. Uh, we've done both. We prefer smoke just because it has a little bit more flavor profile to it. Um, but the oven works as well, and then you basically just cook it up um, to a set temperature, and then you've got bacon for. You got 10, 15 pounds worth of bacon. And I'm going to put in a plug here <laughs> because on our Kickstarter website, uh, one of our rewards is also a bacon making kit. So oh. we will send you the spices and the recipe and the, you know, the instructions for how to make bacon. And we have a apple cinnamon bacon and a ginger garlic bacon, which are delicious. So if that's something, you know, you or your listeners are interested in also, 
Um, if this is something that's interesting to you or to anyone else, but you feel like you don't know what you're doing, right. we also on our um, on our website SwissHolesRomance.com we have lots of recipes, tutorials, all that. And on our Kickstarter campaign, we're also one of our rewards for eight dollars. You can get and three ebooks. It's got basically everything you need to know about dry curing, fermenting sausages, things like that. And we also have, you know, cheese making and beer brewing as well, if, if those are other things you're interested in. So if you just want to know more, you know, there's also a lot of ways to, to learn this stuff and not have to figure it out on your own. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when you're doing like a, a basic brine, especially for um, the meat, what is, is there kind of like a basic ratio of like, say, salt to spices per like square inch of meat or weight of meat? Or what's like your, you know, what's your kind of your basic, Brian, I don't know is necessarily the right terminology there, but that you would start with. If you, yeah, if you, yeah, you definitely want to have the right amount of salt. And again, <laughs> I, I would yeah, recommend. Yeah, we've, we've, we've gotten way over salted meat before, so. <laughs> Again, I would recommend having some type of a scale to measure it out. That's going to be the best way. Salt is important not only for flavor, but also as a safety hurdle. Right. So um, if you're salting your meats, you want at least 2.5% of the weight of the meat to be the weight of the salt that you're going to put on there. So if you have a, um, what would that be? If you have a 100-gram piece of meat, you want to add at least 2.5 grams of salt to it around there. So somewhere around there, 2.5 to 3.5 percentage about. Um, if you are grinding your meat and you're going to make a salami, mm-hmm. you will also want to include some type of sodium nitrate, sodium nit- um, and also known as pink salt, and that is going to help protect against botulism. And that you want 0.25 percentage is the amount that you want. And I know that nitrates are controversial, right. but... Uh, our opinion is that we would much rather not die of botulism <laughs> if we're, you know, if we're going to age some type of, um, some type of salami that, so this protects against it and you don't have to worry about it at all. So yeah, those are the two. And is that, so do you use the, the nitrates? I know in the ground, the ground recipes like your salami and, and pepperoni, I'm assuming. Now, how about your whole muscle cuts where it's not ground? Then can you use just the salt and not add in the nitrates for people who are, you know, concerned about they don't want to use the nitrates. So then if they stick with just like the whole muscle cuts, then is it considered um, safer or not as necessary to have that nitrate component in there? Correct. You do not need the nitrates um, if you have a whole muscle, unless, unless, for example, um, sometimes people with pancetta will roll it up, and in that case, there's um, the environment is that there's meat that's sort of exposed to oxygen, but sort of not because it's encased in that that meat blanket. So, um, so for some preparations, you would need it, but for the majority, you do not. Um, okay. Because the danger is with um, with ground meats where it's in where it has been exposed to oxygen, but then is put in an anaerobic environment. Right. There is, you know, encased in that sausage, it's been ground up, but yet there is no oxygen. Um, that's where the risk of botulism is. Same kind of the same thing for same, can- ex- yeah, exactly. Yeah, the anaerobic environments is is uh, yeah. Most bacteria don't survive in it, but botulism thrives in those anaerobic environments. So I'm really glad that you brought that point up. Now, as far as 
using your salt. So is it regular table salt? Can you use sea salt? Like what, what kind of salts are preferred or, or can you use? Uh, preferably you want one that doesn't have uh, additives to it. So uh, they sometimes they'll put in anti-caking agents into your mm-hmm. salt. So you just want to look and make sure that the only ingredient in your salt is salt. But okay. otherwise, everything, every sea salt works, kosher salt works. Just Himalayan salts, you know. Or... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, it's very much like canning because when you're, when you're canning, um, you don't want to use salt that has, you know, added iodine. You know, that's why you use canning salt. It's just salt. So pretty much it's going to be the same thing for your fermenting. Very similar. It's so different, but there's a lot of similarities. So I am like super excited. Yeah. In fact, we just got four pigs. Um, we brought them home like three weeks ago and, you know, like, I'm like, oh, there's bacon, pork chop. <laughs> um, and so I'm like, oh, this fall, man, when we butcher, mm, I might, I might have to be doing some of this. I'm getting excited here. So I have to, I have to say like, so when you age, so like if you're really new to like, you know, processing your own meat and, and especially, you know, new to hunting and doing all that stuff. So when you age the cattle and we, you know, hang that, it develops a layer of mold growing on the outside and then you cut that away. But for a lot of people, like you see mold growing on something and they're like, oh my goodness, like it's not any good, like it's right. But with ferments, it's not necessarily always true and always like, always the case. So can you dive into that a little bit? Cause I know someone, you know, you're brand new and you're starting this ferment and then you open it up and it's covered in mold and you're gonna be like, Oh no, I burnt it. Well, I think it's going to be dependent on, on, well, use your nose, right? So if it smells off, it's probably going to be off, but if it's got like a, like a funky barnyardy, you know, like clean flavor or smell to it, I think yeah. it's going to be fine. Um, also your eyes are going to help you too. I mean, certain, certain molds, the coloration is going to clue you in. So, Orange, uh, what other colors, Karen, are going to be bad for the molds? Um, oh, I don't know. Black, probably. Black, 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 is, black is off. Um, typically, um, some of your dry-aged um, pepperonis that you see out there, yeah. they're, they're already covered in a white mold. Right. So that's what I'm referring to. So if you see that yeah. white mold, it doesn't mean that it's gone bad. No, that's fine. That's fine. And actually, you can buy mold powder to add to your sausages or your meats that you hang up so that they get that mold. It's actually beneficial. Uh, it keeps other bad molds at bay. Okay. It'll help regulate the moisture loss of it also. So actually, seeing white mold is really a good thing. You don't have to eat it if you don't like it. Yeah, you can scrape you it off. that part off. Okay. Yeah. But it's, it's a good thing to have that. Yeah. I think it tastes fine, you know, that we, we typically we typically eat it. But, yeah, you can always take that skin off if you want. Um, we'll actually dissolve that culture in some water uh-huh. and put a spray bottle and just actually spray our sausages after we make them and, and stuff them. We'll spray that sausage and then uh, throw them immediately in the chamber, and that'll actually help bloom that, that mold on the surface, and you'll be able to actually see it grow over time, which is actually really, really kind of neat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is. That's kind of cool. So it's the good mold. So does that, so the, the white mold that you'll see, which is what I was referring to when I was mentioning the mold, because I've seen it on the on that. So is that aiding in the flavor? Is it aiding in pulling out moisture? Like what kind of, what's its purpose, so to speak? Like why you would inoculate essentially the meat with a, the white mold? Well, it, I mean, it does all of that. <laughs> it will affect the flavor profile. And then also um, it when you... Um, when you make a sausage, for example, you're going to 
like a salami, the casing that you put it in will help it to not dry out too quickly. Okay. And the mold does kind of the exact same thing. It, it forms kind of a protective casing around your meat and it'll, it'll help regulate moisture loss so that you're not losing too much too quickly. And then you dry out the outers, you know, the outside of your meat and the interior is trapped with moisture. Um, it just, yeah, it, it's just, it's amazing how nature just takes over and helps you. I mean, <laughs> this is all beneficial and you for the most part, you don't even have to do anything and the, this mold will just show up and, and help you out. So, Yeah, no, that is awesome. I didn't actually realize that the mold had so many purposes um, on the dry curing. And then it's really cool too because, you know, typically when we think of, you know, like right now, a lot of people are becoming really aware of, you know, probiotics and the good, you know, bacteria is really beneficial to our overall health and immune systems and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, you'll see live pro live cultures is really on all the packaging in the stores. So like we make our own homemade yogurts. We've known that, you know, all those kind of ferments, but it carries over into your meats and cheeses. So if they are cultured at home and fermented, then you're, you're adding in all of that good stuff and those foods as well. So really like your entire meal essentially could be, (laughs) have live probiotics in it, which is pretty awesome. Yeah. You know, I think I saw this article once, um, uh, have you heard of the French paradox? I don't it's, think so. Huh? It's the, the idea is basically people are perplexed about why the French are so healthy when they eat all these foods that are deemed to be unhealthy. Things like the cheeses and the charcuterie, these lots of butter, and lots butter. of butter. Yeah. <laughs> like, how is this possible that the French are so healthy? And <laughs> but I saw this. I, I I just always think they're funny because what other people are think are unhealthy I generally tend to think are healthy oh and but, the girl <laughs> yeah. but but yeah I saw this article that was saying you know the reason for the French paradox is well or one of these possible re- reasons is the mold in their cheese you know the the blue mold in the cheese or something like that is supposedly supposed to um, you know be healthy so all these things that you don't even think about as being a healthy component I mean even the even the mainstream media is starting to recognize that it's yeah has some benefits. Yeah. I'm with you. Like lard right here. Oh my goodness. My, like one of my favorite things about raising the pigs is I get my lard, (laughs) 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 which has had a bad rap for quite a while, but yeah, it's coming back. People are realizing lard is, lard is a good thing. Thank you so much for listening and joining us today and make sure and go and grab your three free recipes for dry curing meat for homemade pepperoni, salami, and prosciutto at melissaknorris.com, episode number 85.